This past month in December, my wife and I celebrated our 12th anniversary. And uh, it's always fun when our anniversary rolls around in December because it gives us a chance to think back and remind ourselves of our honeymoon, which we uh, took shortly after our wedding. And we had a really incredible time on our honeymoon. We got to go to Hawaii and spent 10 days on the island of Maui. And uh, it was absolutely just, just incredible. I mean, it was just everything you would have hoped it would have been. And uh, one of my favorite things, and as my wife and I think back on that time and our honeymoon, one of our favorite things leading up to our honeymoon in Maui was the months before our wedding, dreaming about all that we were going to do on that trip to Hawaii. And uh, we, would, uh, we would go out on dates, and we'd go down to Barnes & Noble, and we'd go to their travel section, and we'd go through all the travel guides and, you know, look at the pictures and dream about what did we want to do and where do we want to go. We'd go to the travel agents and get, you know, brochures, and we'd go through those together. And, and it was so awesome just thinking and dreaming about all that was to come in the future when we got to, this, uh, got to our trip to Hawaii. Well, friends, I'll tell you something. As fun as it was looking at the pictures and dreaming about all the things that we'd see and do there, when we actually got to Hawaii, when we got to Maui, when we felt that fine sand running through our toes, when we dove into those crystal clear blue waters, when we took the helicopter tour flying over the volcanoes and the valleys and the jungles, friends, I'll tell you, the reality of Maui made the brochures and travel guides and all the pictures pale in comparison. I mean, being there and seeing it with our own eyes, experiencing it in person, it made all the difference in the world. And the reason I share that story with you, that experience, is because the last couple of weeks we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and the author of Hebrews has been comparing for us the old covenant of the Jewish religious system given to us in the Old Testament and the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. And one of the key things that the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that in the new covenant, friends, reality has arrived. We've come to our destination that God has promised us. The old covenant was like looking at those travel guides and those brochures and those pictures. It was everything that God promised was coming. And now in the new covenant of Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews wants us to see that reality is here. We've arrived at our destination Everything that we were promised, everything that we were hoping for and looking forward to is now available to us in Jesus Christ. The old covenant was God saying to his people, something better is coming. There's a better destination. Look where I'm going to take you guys. That's our destination. And that's what we're going to look at again this morning is, is what the old covenant was really all about. Now, I want to <clears throat> go back and do a quick review for us because, again, I want us to have the context of where we are in the book of Hebrews. It's important for us to understand the context so that we can understand the particulars of where we are in our passage today in Hebrews chapter 9. I came across a great quote this week from a famous scholar from the 20th century, Donald Gray Barnhouse. I've quoted him before. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to open up his teachings on the book of Hebrews with a great quote. He said, the book of Hebrews was written to the Hebrews to teach the Hebrews that they should no longer be Hebrews. All right, isn't that great? And friends, that's really what the book of Hebrews is all about. The author of Hebrews is trying to convince these Jewish Christians, they were Jewish followers of Jesus, the original Jews for Jesus, he was trying to convince them that they had made the right choice in putting their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. 
And he wanted to make sure that they remained solid in their faith because what was happening in the Hebrew Christian community that this author was writing to is that some of these Hebrew Christians had begun to waver in their faith. We've talked about this, right? Jesus has been off the scene now for 30 years. He died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and 30 years has gone by before the author of Hebrews writes this letter. And over the course of that time, some of these Jewish Christians started second-guessing the choice that they had made. Did we really put our trust in the right guy? Was Jesus really all that he promised? And some of them had started to think about the possibility of going back to the Old Testament religious system of the Old Covenant found in the Old Testament in Judaism. Some of them thought, you know what, when we went to the temple, when we went to the priest, when we went to the sacrifices, at least we, we had some mediator between us and God. And, and while it may not have been perfect access to God, at least it was something. And we knew that it was tangible, it was real. We could go there, we could do the sacrifices, the priest would mediate on our behalf and be a bridge between us and God. But what they were doing, friends, is they were not fully understanding all that Jesus had accomplished for us. They didn't fully see and recognize that, no, Jesus had come to be the perfect bridge. He was the ultimate sacrifice. We no longer need to go to the old covenant religious system. God has brought us to our ultimate destination. He's given us something better, so much more in Jesus. And if you've been with us the last three weeks, we've seen that in Jesus Christ, we've got a better priest We've got a better sacrifice. We've got a better covenant, better promises. All of these things that we have in Jesus Christ are so much more than what you left behind in the old covenant religious system. And so this is the argument that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. Access to God has been made perfect in Jesus Christ. So don't go back. Don't look back. Don't turn back because we've arrived at our destination. You know, really what the argument is being made here in the book, the author of Hebrews, the argument that he's making is really this. He's saying, look it, it's like, it's like if you were to go to Maui and you were to spend your whole week in Maui sitting in your hotel room looking at your brochures and travel guides, right? It's like if Kim and I were in, in Maui and Kim's like, hey Jason, you gotta get over here. Look at this awesome waterfall here in Maui. And I'd be like, Kim, that's ridiculous. We're in Maui. Let's go see the waterfall, right? We don't need to look at the pictures anymore because we're here. We've arrived. We can see the real thing. And that's the point the author of Hebrews is making here in these last couple chapters that we've been looking at. He wants them to see we have arrived. We're at our destination. We don't need to go back. So throw away the pictures. Throw away the brochures. We don't need that stuff anymore because reality is here. Now, this morning, we're going to look further at this argument that the author of Hebrews is making, helping these Jewish Christians to see that they made the right choice in trusting in Jesus. And to do this, the author of Hebrews this morning, we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 9, he goes back to give them a picture of the old covenant. You see, we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks, but the author of Hebrews in the last couple chapters has made some pretty hard comments about the old covenant. Right? He's made comments like the old covenant was weak and useless. And so we talked last week, and I think some of these Jewish Christians probably had these same questions. Well, if the old covenant was weak and useless, you know, what was the point? Did God make a mistake? Was there any value to it? And so now in chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is going to step back and he's going to say, no, don't make a mistake here. There was value in the old covenant. Okay? God didn't make a mistake, but you need to understand God's purpose for the old covenant. His purpose was to paint a picture for us of all that was to come. 
It was a preview of everything that he was gonna do in the future when the Messiah came, when Jesus Christ came. That was ultimately the purpose of the old covenant. It was temporary, okay? It provided a temporary covering for our sin, but ultimately God intended it to be a picture pointing us to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so this is what we're gonna see this morning, the value that we have in the old covenant as a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. The first point I wanna look at in our passage today Hebrews 9, 1 through 14 is this. The old covenant religious system was a picture pointing God's people to Jesus Christ. Okay, now the Jewish people prior to the new covenant, they didn't fully understand this, but now as we see the old covenant in light of Jesus Christ, now we begin to see very clearly that all along God was using the old covenant religious system to point us to Christ. And we see this in our passage today in Hebrews chapter nine. Let's take a look at verses one through five together. The author of Hebrews says this, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Now, the author of Hebrews begins his look at the Old Covenant and the value of the Old Covenant by reminding the people of the tabernacle, the symbol of God's presence amongst his people. And the author of Hebrews, he ends verse five by saying, look, we don't have time to go into detail on this now. And the reason he said that was because he was speaking to Hebrews, right? These were people that really fully understood everything that the tabernacle was about. But you see, we're of the new covenant, so for many of us who are Christians, we don't grow up learning the significance of all that the tabernacle contained. And so I want to spend some time looking at the tabernacle this morning because what we're going to see is that in the tabernacle, what we really have is one giant picture of Jesus Christ. And the tabernacle, the old covenant religious system contained in the tabernacle, everything about it was a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. If you remember, friends, Moses had received the plans for the tabernacle directly from God on Mount Sinai. And as we're going to see looking at the tabernacle this morning, everything about it pointing to, pointed to Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at some of the incredible symbolism that we see here in the tabernacle. First of all, the tabernacle, as you can see on the screen behind me, was a giant tent. It was 150 feet by 75 feet. And it was surrounded by a courtyard which itself was surrounded by a curtain fence. And the tabernacle was set up right in the middle of the encampment of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now the word tabernacle, friends, literally means a dwelling place or the dwelling place of God. And so right away, the tabernacle demonstrates God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people. And friends, think about this. If you recall the Gospel of John, how does the Gospel of John open up? The Apostle John in John 1.14, he opens his gospel saying, and the word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling, his tabernacle among us. It's the very same word. Jesus came and made his dwelling, his tabernacle among us. Showing again that God desired to dwell in the midst of his people. Now there was only one entrance to the tabernacle. And it was the gate on the east side 
of the tabernacle's courtyard. Now this is really interesting because if you remember, friends, when Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, God blocked the eastern entrance back into the Garden of Eden with a cherubim, an angel with a flaming sword. And so here, with this eastern gate, God is saying once again that access to his presence is now available. He's restored access to his presence. And how? You have to go through a gate. And friends, recall this. Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And friends, just like the tabernacle, there's only one entrance. There's only one gate. There's only one way to enter into a relationship with God. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one gate. Now, as we enter into the courtyard of the tabernacle, the first thing we'd come to would be the bronze altar or the brazen altar. This is where the sacrifices were made. And every day, the people of Israel would come and they would bring an unblemished lamb to be sacrificed on behalf of their sins. And friends, think about that. What a perfect picture of Jesus Christ, who was the perfect lamb of God. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, when he first saw Jesus Christ. If you recall Jesus' trials before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, three times in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate declared, I find no fault in this man, in referring to Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He became the perfect sacrifice. There was no fault in him. He was the perfect spotless lamb of God. After passing the bronze altar, we come next to the bronze laver. This was a washing basin used by the priests for their ritual washings to purify themselves, to cleanse themselves before they would go into the Holy of Holies. And again, friends, what a picture of Jesus Christ, the one who cleanses us of all of our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Friends, all of these pieces were one big picture pointing us to Jesus Christ. As we enter into the first room of the tabernacle called the holy place, we would find three items of furniture. First of all, on the left side of the room was the seven-branch lampstand. And this is the lamp that the priests would tend to daily. It was made of solid gold, and it was the only source of light inside the tabernacle. And friends, of course, again, this represents Jesus Christ, who is our true light. John 8, 12, Jesus says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. On the right side of the room, we'd see the table of showbread holding the 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. The table and the bread represented God's provision and his sustenance. And again, Jesus is called the bread of life, the true source of our spiritual sustenance. Jesus, in John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. As we would approach the innermost room of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, we would come to the golden altar of incense. And it was here where the priest would offer up fragrant incense to God representing the prayers and praises of his people. Friends, the incense represented intercession. And of course, we know Jesus is our ultimate intercessor. 1 John 5 says he always hears the prayers of his people. He loves to hear the prayers of his people. 
Hebrews 7.25 says, not only does he love to hear our prayers, but he always lives to intercede for his people. We would next go through a large curtain or veil and enter into the innermost room called the Holy of Holies, the sacred place where God met with the priests of Israel once a year. It was a perfect cube, 15 by 15 by 15, and there was only one piece of golden furniture inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, friends, was just an incredible picture of Jesus Christ. Inside the ark, there were three items. There was a golden pot filled with manna, Aaron's priestly rod that had blossomed flowers, and the stone tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, friends, I want you to understand all three of these items inside the Ark of the Covenant represented the sin of Israel. The manna represented the ungratefulness of Israel when they were wandering in the desert. Aaron's rod reminded Israel of their rebellion against God's authority. The Ten Commandments reminded Israel of their failure to keep God's law. Now, you need to ask the question, why would God put these three symbols of Israel's sin and rebellion inside the Ark of the Covenant, right in the center of the Holy of Holies? Well, to understand that, friends, we need to look at the rest of the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was a cover called the Mercy Seat. And it was the ornate lid which had two large golden cherubim resting upon it. This is where the priest would sprinkle the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of Israel's sins on the Day of Atonement. So I want you to see this. This is really incredible. When God looked down into the Ark of the Covenant, he saw the symbols of Israel's sin and rebellion. But when the sacrificial blood was applied to the mercy seat, God saw the blood covering over the sin of Israel. And he looked at the blood instead of the sin of Israel. And friends, if that's not a picture of the atonement of Jesus Christ, I don't know what is. You see, this whole thing was really a giant picture pointing people to Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand is apart from Jesus Christ, none of these things make any sense, right? I mean, why was this stuff in the tabernacle if not a picture of Jesus Christ? But when we understand the old covenant religious system in light of Jesus Christ, suddenly all of these furnishings begin to make complete sense. It was because all along God was pointing his people in the old covenant to the coming Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So the old covenant religious system was really a large picture pointing God's people to the coming of the Messiah. The second thing we see in our passage today is that the old covenant religious system not only pointed us to the Messiah, but it also revealed to us our need for the Messiah. When the Jewish people would look at the old covenant religious system and practice, they would recognize that they were missing out on something. They needed something more. Take a look at verses 6 through 10 with me this morning. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. 
They're only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. The tabernacle system and its entire system of worship was intended to be a constant reminder right in the midst of the people of Israel. They would encamp all around it and every day they would wake up and they would look at the tabernacle and they would see the priests offering their sacrifices and the whole thing was supposed to be a reminder to the people of Israel that access into the presence of God and personal fellowship with him was forbidden. It wasn't available to the average person. If you recall last week, we talked about the reality of God's holiness, his perfection, his moral purity, and how we, as fallen sinful human beings, we stink. Remember, we stink. Now, if you missed last week, you're thinking, well, what what, what was that all about, we stink? Well, you do, you stink, okay? Just take my word for it. Go back and listen to the sermon online. But you stink. And so we have this big problem because God is holy and we're sinners, we stink. And so as Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. It's because of our sin, because of our stink. And the whole tabernacle system was a daily reminder of our fallenness and God's holiness and how access to God wasn't available to me. It was only available to the priests, and even that was imperfect. And so when the people saw the priests performing their daily work in the holy place and in the holy of holies, all of this was a highlight to the fact that God and access to God was not yet fully open. It wasn't available for the average person, only for the priests. And so in order to make atonement with God, a go-between was needed. A mediator was needed. The people needed to go to the priests in order to have any kind of access to God. The primary example of this that we see in our passage is called the Day of Atonement, what the Hebrews call Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement was a special sacrificial day once a year during the calendar year of the Hebrews. And once a year, the priests would make atonement for the sins committed in ignorance of the people. Now, what does that mean? Well, friends, we all sin every day. We know we sin, and the Israelites would recognize they would sin. And when they would commit a sin, they were called to bring a sacrificial lamb to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice that lamb as an atonement for their sins. But we all commit sins every day that we commit in ignorance, right? We say things, we do things, we we don't even realize sometimes how we're sinning. Right? And that's what the Day of Atonement was all about. It was for those sins that the Israelites forgot or didn't realize that they had committed. And so once a year, the priest, he would first sacrifice a bull for his own sins. He would take that into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it over the mercy seat. Then he would go out, he would sacrifice a lamb for the sins committed in ignorance of the people. He would take that sacrificial blood into the mercy seat. And then he would go to another lamb called the scapegoat, and he would confess all of the sins of the Israelites on the head of the scapegoat and then they would lead that goat out into the wilderness and let it go to wander away never to be seen again. And friends, again, what an incredible picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus has taken our sins. He's cleansed our sins. He's forgiven our sins and like we saw last week, he remembers our sins no more. As far as the east is from the west, God says. That's how far he remembers no more our sins. They're gone forever. And that was the image of the scapegoat. That was what the Day of Atonement was all about. But again, it was an imperfect sacrifice. It didn't fully do the job. And why not? Well, again, friends, verses 9 and 10 tells us it didn't fully do the job because it wasn't able to really cleanse the conscience 
of the worshiper. It was simply an external temporary covering for our sin, but it didn't deal with the heart issue. It didn't deal with our consciences, and that's the big problem, right? Sins were dealt with externally, but they were never truly taken away. The internal corruption of sin remained, and the people's consciences were never truly clear. I remember when I was a little boy, 10 years old, I was a little, I was a little mischief maker, right? I mean, I told you about wrestling last week, and when I was 10 years old, I, we had a neighbor who lived across the street, and he was a real handyman. He was a mechanic. He was always tinkering out in his garage, and so I used to love to go to his house. Does this sound familiar, Mark? You've seen this, right? My son Caleb, right? I used to love to go to my neighbor's house and kind of see what he was up to and, uh, you know, mess around with his tools and stuff, and one day I'm over at his house, and I find on his workbench a blue can of spray paint, and, you know, as a 10-year-old boy, I'm thinking, this is awesome. i got to see how this spray paint works, right? So I kind of swiped this can of spray paint. I stuck it under my sweatshirt, and I ran out. And uh, I was thinking, now, where can I try this spray paint? And sure enough, as I went out of his garage, right there on the side of his garage was this large canvas just waiting to be spray painted, right? So I took this blue can of spray paint, and I started having a blast, you know, painting my neighbor's garage, the side of his garage. Well, about 10 minutes into this, I start realizing, oh no, I'm going to be in big trouble. And I looked at my arms, and they're covered with spray paint splatterings, and, and so I thought, man, I'm in big trouble. So I ran home, and I jumped in the shower, and I scrubbed, I tried to remove all the evidence I could from that, of that spray paint. And I did a good job. I got it all off of me, but you know what? When I got out of the shower, when I got redressed, my conscience was killing me. Right? I was able to remove the evidence of my sin externally, but in my heart, in my conscience, I had this weight. I had this pain because I knew I had done something terrible. And friends, that's exactly what was taking place in the old covenant religious system. What we see here is a system that didn't give men and women any real access to God. It provided only a temporary external covering for our sin, but it couldn't do anything about our guilty consciences. And so the whole point of this old covenant religious system was intended to point us to the fact that we needed something more. We needed more than these temporary sacrifices. We needed more than these finite priests. There was something missing that wasn't fully doing the job of removing our sin and cleansing our consciences. And so the whole system was meant to point us and give us a glimpse of our need for something more, for the Messiah. The third thing we see in our passage today is that this old covenant religious system was ultimately fulfilled and made obsolete by Jesus Christ. And this is the real hope that we have, friends, in the gospel. This is the heart of the author of Hebrews' argument. It's, it's what we've been looking at the last three weeks in chapters 7 and 8, where he's going to go now in chapters 9 and 10, looking at the supremacy of Christ. The whole point of this argument is that in the new covenant, Jesus Christ fulfilled and made obsolete everything in the Old Testament religious system. Look at verses 11 through 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, 
cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. The author of Hebrews says, number one, that the old covenant was fulfilled by Christ. And how did Christ fulfill the old covenant? Well, verse 12 tells us that once for all time, through his own blood, Jesus Christ obtained eternal redemption. Once for all. Friends, do you remember Jesus' last words as he hung on the cross? on the day of his execution. The Gospels tell us that as Jesus hung on the cross, his last words, he yelled out in Aramaic, Tetaliste! Tetaliste! And what does that mean? It is finished. It is finished. What was finished, friends? Jesus wasn't talking about his crucifixion. His victory cry, it is finished, was a victory cry letting the whole world know that the old covenant religious system is obsolete, it's done away with, it is finished. Because Jesus Christ had come and he had been and provided the perfect sacrifice. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was the perfect Lamb of God. And so when he died and took our sins upon him once and for all time, providing eternal redemption, he was able to yell in victory, it is finished, because the old had been done away with. And do you recall what happened in the Gospels? The Gospels say that when Jesus died and yelled out that victory cry, what happened to the curtain in the temple? The Gospels tell us that the curtain in the temple dividing the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. It was torn in two, symbolizing that access to the Holy of Holies was now available to all people. You didn't have to be a priest. It wasn't just once a year. Now, every single person who put their trust in Jesus Christ has access to the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God, to a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus fulfilled his role as the perfect sacrifice for sin. He was the perfect substitute for our sins, for you and for me. And when Jesus died then, and when he ascended into heaven, the Gospels and in the book of Hebrews here tells us that he then took his place in the heavenly tabernacle. And this is so incredible. What did Jesus do when he entered into the perfect tabernacle, the true sanctuary in heaven? Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, which we read two weeks ago, says that he sat down on his throne. Jesus sat down on his throne. And friends, please understand this. Jesus Christ doesn't need to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Jesus Christ sits on the mercy seat. That's his throne in heaven. He sits on the mercy seat. And as Hebrews 7.25 says, he always lives to intercede for his people. Friends, do you see how incredible this is? Jesus has given us access to God. He himself sits on the mercy seat. He is our intercessor who has provided eternal redemption. If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. Because think about that. These Old Testament people, these Jewish people, they had to go to the temple every day to cleanse their sins. Can you imagine how bloody and disgusting that was to every day have to bring a lamb and sacrifice another lamb for my sins? And now Jesus has said, Tetaliste, it is finished. All of that is over. The new has come. Through me, you can have access to God. 
The second thing we see here is that the old covenant, not only was it fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but it was made obsolete in Jesus Christ. And why is that? Well, in verse 14, it says that Jesus Christ came and he, through his sacrifices, provided the perfect cleansing of our consciences so that we might serve the living God. Friends, the old covenant is obsolete because of Jesus Christ. He has once for all removed the stain and the stink of our sin in the eyes of a holy God. And as a result of this, we can know the reality of consciences liberated from the weight of our guilt. This uh, past December, Christmas time, I, I made the mistake of missing a week taking out my trash. Have you ever done that, right? I mean, in Christmas season is the worst time to forget to take out your trash, right? Because you have all that extra wrapping paper and boxes, and we had family in town, so we had even extra trash. And, and, uh, and I had forgotten to throw away the week before. Uh, there, was a, there was a package of rotten meat that I had in the garbage, and the garbage just stunk, and it was smelly, and it was overflowing with trash, and I'm out there, like, stomping on it. You know, I had a stepladder, and I'm, you know, jumping up and down, trying to smash this trash and keep the stink covered with the lid. And then finally the day came to take the trash out and that garbage can it weighed like 200 pounds I'm not even kidding you and so I'm like pushing this thing down the street and it I mean it had wheels but it was just I mean it was like a beast of burden trying to get this to the end of my driveway and I started thinking I mean this is just like our sin isn't it I mean we try to stuff our sin down we try to keep it out of the way because it just stinks and it smells and it beats us up and it burdens us and it's heavy and smelly and stinky and all of that but friends when the garbage man came Man, that was awesome because the garbage man came and he took that stinky, smelly, heavy trash can. And I mean, it probably took two of those guys to get it up on the hoist and empty it out. But man, they dumped out that trash and they got rid of the stink. They got rid of the smell. They got rid of the weight. That afternoon I came home from work. I pulled the trash can up with one hand. It was so great. And the weight, the burden was removed. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus Christ does for us. He takes the stink of our sin. He takes away the filth of our sin. He takes the burden and the weight of our guilty consciences and he removes those when we confess our sins and put our hope and our trust in him. And as we talked about last week, Romans 8, 1 and 2 says, there is now no longer any condemnation in Jesus Christ. And see, what happens is because there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, that's when the believer begins to experience what Jesus promised us in John 10, 10, that I have come that you might have life and life to the full. And when you begin to experience life to the full in a relationship with Jesus Christ with your sins forgiven and your conscience is cleansed, what that does is that then inspires you with a life of joy to want to serve Jesus Christ. The fruit of a life that has been forgiven and cleansed is a life that says, Lord, I want to live for you in all areas. That's what he's talking about. we and go on with joy to serve the living God because what else would I want to do? Jesus emptied my trash. He took it away. He hauled it away. The stink is gone. The smell is gone. The burden is gone. Who else would I want to serve? What else would I want to give my time to and invest my money in and, and, and give my life to but the one who gave everything for me so that I might know life and life to the full? 
I've been freed. There's no more condemnation in Jesus Christ. And I think what happens for a lot of people, one of the biggest lies of the enemy is to get us to beat ourselves up and to remind us of our sin and to get us caught up in this guilt that keeps us from experiencing life to the full so that we serve God joyfully in all areas of our life because the enemy says, no, you're such a loser. Don't you remember all you did? Don't you remember the way you screwed up? And we forget that Jesus has taken the trash out. He's removed it. It's gone. That burden's been removed. But the enemy tries to remind us of that. And here's the thing, friends. I want you to understand this. If it is true that there is no longer any condemnation in Jesus Christ, then why are you condemning yourself? Why are you buying into those lies of the enemy if there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ? You've been free to that burden. And spouses, if your husband or your wife has wronged you or sinned against you, what right do you have to hold that condemnation against them? If Jesus Christ has forgiven them of their sins and there's no longer any condemnation in Jesus Christ, what right do you have to condemn them if they've repented of their sins and sought forgiveness? Right? And if you've got a friend who's wounded you and sinned against you, friends, if there's no longer any condemnation in Jesus Christ and if he has forgiven their sins, what right do you have to hold their sins against them? See, God liberates us. He forgives us. He cleanses us. And he frees us from condemnation. Condemnation is a lie of the enemy. And don't buy into that lie because he wants to keep you from living life to the full so that he can keep you from serving God in a life of joy and thanksgiving. What a great hope we have in Jesus Christ. The hope of the new covenant. This is what the author of Hebrews wants us to see. The old is gone, the new has come. Throw away the pictures, throw away the brochures, throw away the travel guides because we've arrived. Reality is here, live in that reality. Live it up, love it, enjoy it because there's nothing better than living for Jesus Christ and knowing life and life to the full in Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to look at your word here this morning to dig into these powerful truths that you've given us in the book of Hebrews. And Jesus, I, I just pray that what I've shared here this morning would, would even just be a sliver, a glimpse of the fullness of what you have for us. Please, God, inspire us with a great vision of all that we have in Jesus Christ, Lord. Renew our joy, renew our hope. Help us to remember, God, that we have been freed to live lives of joyful service to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus, if there's anybody here today who's still wrestling with the weight of condemnation, with the burden of their sin, Lord, I pray that they would put their hope in the promises of the new covenant this morning, that they would come to know and see that they have a Savior who has forgiven their sins, who has removed them as far as the east is from the west, that he invites them into new life when they turn to him when we trust in you, Jesus, and we confess our sins, that you will cleanse us and make us a new creation. You will experience, give us a new experience of life and life to the full. I pray, God, if there's, nobody, if there's somebody here who hasn't ever accepted that gift and embraced that reality, that they might do that today, that they might call out to you and acknowledge their need for a Savior. And Jesus, thank you, God. Give us the courage, give us the empowerment, give us the, the boldness, Lord, to go out into the world this week and to live out this incredible truth that we have in the promises of Jesus Christ. Thank you for all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.